1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have a copy of the Bible in front of you or if you have access to the Bible on your phone, you can open that up. Also, the Bible verses that we'll be looking at are going to be up here on the screen. I'm excited to be able to, to teach through this portion of Scripture. Uh, you know, it's, I thought I was very trendy preaching from a round table, but now that I'm holding a mic... This is really trendy. This is all all the rage now. Apparently, I'm on uh, I'm on preachers. So we're gonna go gonna go for this. Also, if you are over, overly observant, you might say, "Owen, oh, didn't you wear a green sweater last week?" Well, that was a different green. And on top of that, I always wear this green on Masters Sunday. So this is the closest I will ever get to a green jacket. Uh, Paul Thompson he wore his green jacket as well this morning. So I have to wear this because. You guys know how much I love golf, and this is the closest I'll ever get to a green jacket at the Masters. So I have to wear this, have to wear this on Masters Sunday. You've probably heard of the phrase sophomore slump. Uh, sophomore slump is not related to freshman 15, uh, though they might seem to, to go together. Freshman 15 is when you get to college as a freshman and bad habits lead to 15 extra pounds that you weren't counting on. Not pounds of muscle, but just 15 extra pounds, and so that's the freshman 15. Sophomore slump is a phrase usually used in athletics, but it applies to academics as well, where someone has a really strong first year, they perform at a high level, everything's going well, and then the second year, things just don't go as well, don't go the way they want. There's that drop-off of some sort. In church world, the Sunday after Easter sometimes is a fear factor for pastors that it's our own form of the sophomore slump. You live at such a high level on Easter and all the intensity and all the preparation, and then you think, oh yeah, we go back again the next Sunday and we're gathering for worship. But here's the great thing about that, and here's where church history and the church calendar become such a help to us. In the Christian church calendar, Easter is not one standalone Sunday. The Sunday of Easter begins the season of Easter. There are seven Sundays of Easter leading up to a holiday that is called Pentecost that talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit in power in Acts chapter 2. And so what we are doing this morning is we're not trying to survive a sophomore slump. What we are doing this morning is we continue to live in the power of the resurrection. This is not the second, or this is not the Sunday after Easter. This is the second Sunday of Easter in the church calendar. So we gather, we celebrate the resurrection, we see why it's so important, we see why it's so powerful, and then we don't live under the pressure to have to reinvent that hype. We don't have to live under the pressure to say, what's the next cool thing we're going to do? We say, because that is good news, I want to live in that power. I want to continue to experience the work of God in my life. So what we're doing this morning is this is the second Sunday of Easter, and we're going to continue in 1 Corinthians 15 asking, how do I not waste the resurrection? Here's the phrase I'd like you to go home with today. Don't go home with sophomore slump, or it was a complete waste <laughs> of a sermon. That's a good phrase, but that's not the phrase I want you to go home with. The phrase I want you to go home with is right side up. We talked about this last week, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ turns the world right side up. 
in sin and death, everything is turned over. Everything is inverted from what God designed it to be. But what the resurrection of Jesus did was to transform, to turn over, to set right the world that God had created. And in the process, the resurrection of Jesus turns our lives right side up. And so this morning, the first set of verses is about how Jesus turned the world right side up. The second half of verses is about how he does that with our lives. If that's helpful to follow along with a little bit of structure on the back of your bulletin, you'll see some notes you can study. But right now, we want to jump in to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20. And we'll do that as soon as I find that in my Bible. Here we go. Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Last week, we dealt with verses 12 through 19 when we tried to think through, okay, if the resurrection of Jesus is not true, what are the implications of that? This week, the verses start out and they say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So this week, we're going to start from the foundation of we believe this is true. We believe this is the foundation of our lives. We believe this is the foundation of our church. If that is the case, what do we learn from that? How do we see that worked out? The key word in verse 20 is the word first fruits. First fruits finds its background in the book of Leviticus in your New Testament. Several times this morning, I'm going to reference other passages in the Bible that we're not going to turn to directly because of time's sake, but if you are a note taker, or maybe you have one of those Bibles that has a couple of study notes out to the side, I would encourage you to make a couple of little notes because there's so much background material behind what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 15. And I've probably shared this with you before, but one of the things that will take your Bible study from black and white to color, or will take your Bible study from 2D to 3D, will really make it come alive, is when you start to see all of the background material that's at work in Scripture. When you just read something and you read it on the surface and then you pass by, that's important. You're receiving the Word of God. But I am convinced when Bible study really becomes fun, really becomes exciting, really begins to come to life for you, is when you start to see the pieces fitting together. When you say it's not just this piece of the puzzle, but that refers back to something that I saw earlier, or that refers back to something that God was doing earlier, and now he's bringing it to fullness. Now he's bringing it to fruition. And so what I want to do this morning is give you some of those background elements. And for first fruits, this goes back to the idea in Leviticus of giving an offering or a sacrifice. When the people would bring an offering of their harvest, they would bring the first portion to the Lord. And that was called the first fruits. And the reason that was important is when you brought the first fruits, it wasn't a sign that that was all the Lord was going to receive. The reason the first fruits were important is because when you brought the first part, it was a sign that all the rest belonged to the Lord as well. And so the first fruits was an assurance, it was a dedication of more to come. That what we were seeing right now was not the end, there was going to be more to come. Quick application for, for our lives. 
when we talk about financial giving, when we talk about giving of our time, even attending corporate worship on a Sunday, when you give, when you give financially from your paycheck, or when you give of your time by coming together and worship like this or to serve, when you give the first portion of that, it doesn't mean that all the rest is yours to do with as you please. When you give the first portion, it's a way of saying, and God, all the rest is yours as well. So the reason we teach financial giving, that the first gift that's given is to the Lord, is because when you give the first to the Lord, you'll use all the rest for the same purposes as well. So I remember as a young child uh, watching my parents write out their checks to, to pay their bills. Kids, a check is this little piece of paper uh, where, where you write on it an amount of money and it's going to go to someone, you sign your name. And, and so I still remember my mom on, sitting at the table, checkbook out there, bills laid out on, on the table. And there were a couple of times, and, and this still sticks with me, there were a couple of times that they would bring us over and say, they weren't showing off, they, they were teaching. They were saying, this is our paycheck that we received. We received this amount of money. And the very first check we're going to write out of the checkbook is we're going to give some money to the church because we know that's going to be used for missions. We know it's going to be used to make the gospel known. We're going to give that money first, and then we're going to pay all these bills that are laying out there. Well, as a kid, you don't understand that. But what does stick with you is that the first money was going to the Lord. Now, those other bills, are those spiritual? Absolutely they are. You're fulfilling your obligation. You're living life the way God's called you to do. But you're saying, we're going to give the first because that first fruit is going to be a sign of what's to come. The Lord's Day, gathering together for worship like we're doing today, this is not meant to be disconnected from all the other time you invest this week. You have a lot of things to invest your time in this afternoon and throughout the week. By giving the first of that time at the beginning of the week to the Lord, it's a first fruit of how you're going to spend your time throughout the rest of the week. And so there's this theology throughout Scripture of giving the first. And so what's being told, talked about here is the resurrection of Jesus was the first fruit of what was to come. His resurrection is not meant to be disconnected from the resurrection of Christians in the future. It was the assurance uh, it was the dedication of what was to come, and his resurrection was representative of what we were all going to experience. There's a great, great quote up here from a commentator uh, named G.E. Ladd. Jesus' resurrection was not a return to physical earthly life. It was the emergence within history of the life of the world to come. The resurrection of Jesus set the stage. It was the first fruits of what we were to expect. Go ahead in verse 21 in your Bible. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, that man reference there is Adam. For as by a man, Adam, Genesis chapter 3 in your Bible, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What's happening here in verses 21 and 22 is you're seeing this pattern laid out. Adam, sin, death, moving away from the glory of God. Jesus reverses, or I'm using the phrase right side up. Jesus turns that on its head. And so now it's not 
Adam, sin, death, away from God's glory. Now it's Jesus, cross, resurrection, moving toward God's glory. And so Adam and Jesus in these verses become representative of two ways to lead your life. There's a way to live life that moves away from God's glory, that moves into sin, into death, constantly away from the Lord. There's a way to live life that reverses that, that turns that right side up and says, I'm not going to go that direction. I'm going to turn to Christ, and I'm going to live toward the cross, toward the resurrection, and toward God's glory. These two patterns really fill in all of Scripture for you. Are we moving away from God's glory to do things the way we want to? We flip it upside down. I'm in charge. God does what I want him to do. Or do we turn that around the way it's supposed to be and say, I'm going to give myself to the Lord. He is on the throne. He's in charge. And I'm going to live for him by the cross and by the resurrection. The, the phrase there at the end of that verse in verse 22 where it says, all shall be made alive. A couple of questions there. First, made alive there almost certainly has a future reference, talking about the resurrection to come. But the resurrection power of Jesus is meant to begin now. So what God has planned for us in the future, the hope of the resurrection, that power breaks into the world right now. But there's a word there that says, all be made alive. Does that mean that every single person will experience the resurrection that leads to eternal life? And the answer there is no, because there's a small phrase that shows up right before that. It's the phrase, in Christ. In Adam, every one of us is born into sin and death. Every one of us finds ourselves in need of a Savior. But in Christ, those who say, I'm not going to live according to this world. I cannot hold my life together. I need salvation. I need hope. I want to be in Christ. Your background for this particular passage is Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 deals with this idea of Adam and Christ. Sometimes you will hear Jesus referred to as the second Adam or the new Adam, or the perfect Adam, what happens with Jesus in the story of Scripture is everything that Adam undid, messed up, turned over, Adam being representative of humanity, everything that was messed up and turned over, Christ has made new. Christ has perfected. You'll see this so much in the New Testament where something happened in the Old Testament that was going the wrong direction, and Jesus will live that out in the opposite way, in the correct way. He turns it right side up. Verse 23. Verse 23 says, each in his own order. So it's going to give the way this is going to happen. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. This idea of order here means first the resurrection of Jesus, then at the end of history, the resurrection of those who hope in him. But also, the word order in your Bible there can have the idea of rank. First Jesus making resurrection possible, then all who hope in him. So what's the big deal about that? In Corinth, Social rank was a big deal. 
You may come from a family where you have a matriarch in the family or a family background where social class is a big deal. Uh, Kids, if your grandma says, let's not embarrass ourselves, that's the idea. Let's live the way we're supposed to live. We have a certain persona. We have a certain social class to uphold here. In Corinth, economic and social standing was everything. Um, I didn't really understand this until we lived in New Orleans and you saw these debutante balls um, or you read the social section of the newspaper and it was a really big deal if your name or family showed up in the social section of, of the newspaper. You had this reputation to uphold. You had this standing to uphold. In the ancient world, social standing and economic standing were so crucial. But what Paul has done here is he only gives two ranks. He only gives two runs on the ladder. Christ, all who hope in Christ. And that would have been so frustrating to the Corinthians. Because they would have said, yeah, yeah, but I'm a little bit better than all those other Christians. You know, that's great. We're all in Christ, but I've got a little more money. I've got a little more social standing. Paul says, no, no, no. It's Christ, his resurrection, that has then made possible life for everyone, no matter where you stand on the social ladder. Which reminds us that Christianity is good news no matter where you find yourself on the social ladder. No matter where you find yourself on the economic ladder. That the message of the gospel is just as much needed by the person at the top of the social ladder as it is by the bottom of the social ladder. That it's Christ's resurrection and then all who hope in him. Verse 24. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. First thing, the word then, we don't have a clear indicator of how much time is passing. Is there a long amount of time that's passed, short amount of time that's passed? That's not the purpose of the word then. Second thing, when you see the word end, E-N-D, in your New Testament, we think of end, we think the end. <laughs> you read your kids a book, the end, story's over. In your New Testament, the word end is a word that means goal or purpose. It's the Greek word telos. It's the idea of working towards something. So when you see the word, then the end will come, don't think, oh, and then it's all over. <laughs> When you see the word end in the New Testament, you think, oh, it's just beginning. End is the goal, the purpose of all creation, goal, purpose of everything that God is leading his world and his people toward. And when you reach that, you're just beginning to live all of eternity that God has set before his people. And so when it says up here, then the end comes, it says, then when Christ delivers the kingdom, when God... When Christ completes all that God has sent him to do, then we begin to live out all that God has for his people. Verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. All right. You all know that I have an unhealthy obsession with grammar, 
and, and the way that, that grammar works itself out. At this point in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's, I was about to say Paul's English teacher, Paul's Greek teacher, <laughs> Paul's, Paul's grammar teacher has absolutely lost her mind. Like her red pen is going crazy. And on Paul's letter to the Corinthians, she's written, do you not know about antecedents? Um, antecedent is the word that a pronoun points back to. If you get nothing spiritual this morning, you get a little grammar lesson, okay? Um, so if I get the word he, who does he refer to? If I get the word it, who does, or what does it refer to? That's kind of the way, the way antecedents work. What Paul does here, he, he, his, his, ah, who's he referring to? Is he referring to God the Father or God the Son? And what you find out really quickly is it becomes very confusing to tell who is Paul referring to. But almost certainly what he's talking about is a background that is found in Psalm 110 and Psalm 8. Paul is going to take two of these ancient psalms, Psalm 110 and Psalm 8, and he's going to begin to weave them throughout 1 Corinthians 15. They become the foundation for understanding the coming of the Messiah. And with Psalm 110 and Psalm 8, it's talking about the establishment of the king who would be God's representative on earth. And it becomes a psalm about the coming of the Messiah. And so Psalm 110 and Psalm 8 help us know that the purpose behind these verses is that God has sent Jesus as the Messiah, as the king who would represent him perfectly on earth, so that then one day every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that everything would be established as it should be. And we see that beginning at the end of verse 26, or, or the end of verse 27, when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted, that he is left out, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. If that sounds confusing, it's because it is. Um, so let me give you two illustrations to make sense of this. Here's the first illustration. Remember in this context of 1 Corinthians, we're talking about the Roman Empire, okay? We're talking about the Roman Empire. So there would have been a centralized power around the emperor. And if the emperor hears about a rebellion out there somewhere in his territory, he's going to send one of his main generals to go out and put down that rebellion so everything would be subjected to the emperor, so there would be no rebellion. Paul is using that idea, Paul is using that language to say, if God knows that there is rebellion in his world, rebellion in his kingdom, he is going to send his representative, he is going to send his general, so to speak, to go and put down that rebellion, to deal with the problem so that everything should be as it is, everything would be subjected to him. Now, some people were saying, yeah, but what if Jesus comes and goes rogue, <laughs> takes over, says, I'm not going to do what the Father said. I'm going to do what, what I want. Uh, kids, 
if your parents tell you to go and say something to your brother or sister, say, hey, it's time for dinner, that doesn't mean you're in charge of the whole house. Don't let the power go, go to your head. It's the person who's given a task to do, and then all this power goes to their head, and all of a sudden they think they're in charge. No, you were supposed to say, come to dinner, not I rule the house. Those are two completely different ideas. And so Jesus does his work not of his own will, not doing whatever he wants to do, but in order that everything should come to the perfect end. What is the perfect end? That God may be all in all. God being all in all is another way in the New Testament of talking about God's glory. That everything would be directed to him. That everything would be in submission to him. God being all in all is not... uh, New Age pantheism, it's not God's in the tree, God's in the rock, God's in my head. It's not that idea. God being all in all means he is above all. He is sovereign. He is in control over all, and everything is in submission to him. There's nothing in rebellion to him, that that is what everything is leading toward. Which takes us to the next part there, verse 29. So through verse 28, we're talking about how the resurrection sets all the world as it should be. It turns it right side up. But if that's true, what does that mean for my life? Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Oh, my word. Like if the the last part wasn't confusing enough, What do we do with verse 29? I was reading a couple of commentaries this week, and one commentator said that in research over the last several decades, there have been more than 40 different interpretations for this particular verse put forward. Um, First thing I'll tell you is we're not going to cover all 40, so so don't worry. Uh, I'm going to give you two possible interpretations for this verse that is just really hard to understand. How do you make sense of this? Here's one option. One option is that it means kind of what it sounds like, that people were being baptized on behalf of people who had already died. Generally speaking, in modern day world, we think of this type of practice in reference to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or, or, or Mormon doctrine, that someone would be baptized on behalf of someone else. Two things to say about that. Number one, if you have friends or family members who are part of a Mormon church or come from a Mormon background, you can find some great material um, at a Watchman Fellowship. If you Google Watchman Fellowship, I believe their, their website is watchman.org. Uh, it's a ministry developed by a man named James Walker. James has actually been here with us at Emmaus. Sometimes you go online and you find material and it just comes off the wrong way. It sounds like I'm right, you're wrong, let me tell you all about it. James doesn't operate that way. He was a former Mormon, fourth generation Mormon, has been involved in a lot of things, but came to faith in Christ. God has used him to minister to people in all kinds of different religious backgrounds. And so they have some great material on their website. Whether or not this passage is talking about that, What we find out is Paul never condones this practice. He's using it as an example. He's not saying you go and do likewise. 
He's using it as an example if he's talking about being baptized on behalf of the dead. On top of that, every time, I, I say every time, I'd have to be careful, almost every time in 1 Corinthians 15 when the dead are referenced, it's the Christian dead. So Paul is not saying be baptized on behalf of someone who lived their life for the things of this world and then everything will be okay for them after death. You don't find anything like that in the New Testament. If anything, it's be baptized on behalf of those who have died. They believed in Jesus, but they hadn't been baptized themselves. That's one way to understand it. The phrase on behalf of is one single word in the Greek language, in that original writing of the New Testament. It's one word. It can either mean on behalf of, or it can mean on account of. What Paul might be saying in this verse is otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on account of the dead? Meaning, follow me on this, someone you really respect is a follower of Jesus. They die, and you think, man, I wish I had the hope that they have. Why did they die with such peace? Why did they die with such hope? And so you're baptized you become a follower of Jesus on account of someone who had already died and you saw their faith in Christ and that led you to also want to have faith in Christ. When you're in a situation where someone isn't a follower of Jesus and they see someone go through a terrible terminal illness and all through that illness they just keep trusting in Christ, they love people, they die with peace and hope and someone looks at that and says, man, I wish I had that. They're being baptized on account of the dead. They're doing it based on this future hope. And Paul says, if there is no future hope, why would anyone do that? Those are the two options. I kind of lean toward the second one. It, it might be an emotional decision, but the idea that someone would be baptized on account of the hope that they saw in someone else's life, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, but there's 40 possible interpretations, so <laughs> take, take it for what it is. Paul's main point here is if you believe in a future resurrection of the dead, it should impact the decisions you make right now, which leads us to verse 30. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Verse 32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. Now, did Paul actually fight as a gladiator, fight the beast in the arena? Probably not. You find this phrasing used in the ancient world metaphorically. Uh, he fought with beasts. I dealt with some really difficult people at work. They were like beasts, so I fought with beasts. It kind of felt like that. Um, this kind of language was used metaphorically in the ancient world, so most likely, Paul did not fight as a gladiator in the arena, though it's not out of the realm of possibility. It's just, it's just not likely. More, more than likely, he's talking about, I've dealt with some very hard things. End of that verse, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Here's what Paul is saying in those verses. If there's no future resurrection... Why did I go through all of those hard things in life? If there's no future resurrection, let's eat. 
drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's live it up right now. That phrase comes from the book of Isaiah, and it references the people as the Assyrians were coming in to take their city. Instead of repenting of their sins and crying out to God, they said, you know what? We're about to be taken. Let's party like there's no tomorrow because there's no tomorrow. So let's just live it up. This is all we have. And Paul says, but if there is a future resurrection, if this world is not all there is, then that's not how we live. In Christ, our goal is not to have the safest, most comfortable, most pleasurable life possible right now. In Christ, we are called to risk. In Christ, we are called to deny ourselves. In Christ, we are called to live for something more. That doesn't mean there's no joy in this life. It means you find true joy in this life by not living just for the things of this world. It's not about how much can I accumulate right now. It's about what is God doing in and through me. Next verse there, 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. In other words, if you're around people who don't believe in the resurrection, that's probably not going to have a good impact on the way you live your life. You're going to live just for now, not for the future. 34, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, meaning no knowledge of God's power in the resurrection. I say this to your shame. Where does this lead us at the end? On the bottom of your notes, you have a section there, the so what question. If the resurrection is true, and we believe it is, what's the impact? What are the implications? How do I not waste that? How do I make that part of my life? The first thing is to live with hope and stability in the resurrection. If God has set everything right, and you have placed your hope in him, it brings a stability and a peace and a purpose to life that should be so engaging for the people around you. Does it mean you're not going to have trouble? No, you're going to have a lot of struggles. There's going to be things that you face, but there's a hope and a stability that comes with that. Number two, pursue holiness. Somebody sent me an email this week, not a part of our church, but someone else's, a very appropriate email, very straightforward. They said, I heard that if you trust in God, actually they said, I heard that you Baptists say that if you trust in God for salvation, then you can just live however you want because you're always going to be saved. Well, no, in fact, that's not what we say. Um, if you hope in the resurrection to say that God has done in my life what I can never do on my own, he has saved me, he has given me hope for the future, hope for right now, the result of that is not that I party like there's no tomorrow. It's not that I live it up. It's that I want to pursue holiness with everything I have. If God has given me new life in Christ, I want to live that life that he's given me. I want to pursue holiness with everything that I have. Which leads to number three, sacrifice and risk to make the resurrection known. The resurrection powerfully addresses our tendencies towards self-protection and self-preservation. We live in a world where we're taught to do everything you can to protect your rights, do everything you can to protect yourself, circle the wagons, be protective, be cautious. And I'm not saying that there's not a place for that because there is in appropriate ways. 
But the resurrection blows that idea up. The resurrection says, this life is not all there is. And so my goal in life is not to live a life of least resistance. My goal in life is not to go out of my way to avoid suffering. My goal in life is not to eat, drink, and be merry. My goal is that I would give up everything to make the hope of Christ known. Protectionism might be a debatable political philosophy, but it's terrible Christian theology. In Christ, we have been set free from having to live for the things of this world. We have been set free from doing everything we can to protect ourselves. And we say we're going to sacrifice. We'll deny self. We'll take risk. And that's not just personally. That's as a church. If our goal as a church is to circle the wagon and make life as easy as possible with very few risks, very few sacrifices, let's just make this very, let's just coast out there as long as we can. That's not the life that God has called us to live. If the resurrection is true, it says as a church, we will deny self, we will make sacrifices, we will take risk so that people would hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. And in saying that, point number four on your notes is I'm going to get around people that will help me do that. Paul says bad company corrupts good morals. Kids, that's when your parents tell you who you spend time with impacts the way your life goes. That's a biblical idea. Now, does that mean I don't ever spend time around people who don't love Jesus? No, Paul's actually already dealt with that in 1 Corinthians. He says, you're going to be living in this world. But who influences your life? The people who influence your life, do they say live for now? Make sure your life is easy? Take the path of least resistance? Is, is that who's speaking into your life? Or do you have people in your life who say, man, take a risk. Deny yourself. Let's live for something more. Let's make our lives count. Let's make this church count. Let's do something that impacts the kingdom of God. Get around people who drive you to worship, who drive you to grow in your faith, who drive you to live for something more. We have oversold the present and undersold the future. We have said everything good is right now. Let's make sure it counts. When we should be saying everything good is to come, God has right now perfectly under control. And so I'm going to give my life to him. I'm going to live for him. I'm going to make my life count, not for myself, but for his glory so that he may be all in all. That's what I want to live for. That's what I want to make our church count for. That's what I want to do together with you. And we do that not in our own power, but through the power of the resurrection. Would you bow with me? Father, on this second Sunday of Easter, we come together to say that Jesus has turned the world right side up. That without him, everything's in chaos, everything's turned upside down, everything's not as it should be. And Father, if we're honest, a lot of us would look at our own lives or we would look at the world around us and we would admit quickly, things aren't as they should be. The world sometimes just feels like it's 
going out of control, spinning out of control. It's upside down. We don't have the strength to turn the world right side up. We cannot make everything right in our state. We cannot make everything right in our own hearts. But God, we believe that you can. And so we will embrace Christ as the hope of the world. We will look to you to set everything to rights. We will look, you, look to you to turn the world right side up. And then, Father, do that work in our lives. Father, I pray that if we believe the resurrection, that it would lead us to pursue holiness with everything we have. If we believe the resurrection, God, that we would be willing to deny self, make sacrifices, take risks, get around people who help us do that. God, I know in my own life, I'm prone to take the easy route. I'm prone to be apathetic and just back off and let life come at me day after day. But God, in the resurrection, there is power that goes beyond that. We want our families, we want our lives, we want this church to be all about your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.